Now, on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions. Starting to learn more about value stocks rather than growth stocks. You guys are saving me a, a lot of money. And provides unbiased answers. All right. Well, you're looking at historical blue chip names, and they've endured. Their brands have endured. Invest Talk. Over 42 million downloads and counting. Across America and around the world, your participation makes it unique. 888-99-CHART. At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Friday, June 3rd, June 3rd, 2022 edition, and I'm Justin Klein, and I'm in for Steve Peasley today, and I look forward to doing this show with you and having this hour with you. It uh, was quite an eventful week, a lot of volatility, a lot of market uh, news, uh, some we had the jobs number come out today, a little bit worse than expected. We had some news out of companies like Tesla talking about laying off workers. So, you know, we're clearly seeing the tightening factors play into markets uh, and, and the economy. The question is, how far will the slowdown go? What will the pace be? Will it accelerate or just kind of get us back to the longer term averages from a valuation perspective, from a growth perspective, et cetera. And that's kind of what I think the market's trying to figure out right now is where will the market steady state look like? And a lot will depend on policy, both out of the Fed, out of government, Congress, as well as the rest of the world. And what does China do? What does Europe do? What's happening? What about Eastern Eastern Europe in uh, Ukraine and Russia? So all these factors are influencing how markets react. And you have to keep an eye on all of them because they all play into interest rate moves, foreign currency moves, as well as commodity markets, which are becoming a big deal again. I remember early in my career, there was the commodity boom from the about 2003 until 2008, when oil peaked at it was 150 something dollars a barrel, I can't remember the exact number, but somewhere in the mid 100s. And, you know, there were shops that opened up and just trying to sell commodity futures funds, things like that. Uh, so it's always interesting to see kind of the ebb and flow 
of what's important to markets, what moves markets. And as I talked about yesterday, it's a new era, new era that uh, means likely sustainably high inflation, as well as higher commodity prices. And so in this environment, you need to be ready to pounce on the right opportunities because there are great opportunities out there. Don't look at the market as a whole and say, oh, well, the market is not good. I shouldn't invest. There's always parts of the market that are doing bad. There's always parts of the market that are holding up well or even going up. And so on this show, I'm going to do my very best to help you continue to give you the tools to help you make good investment decisions and do that consistently, not just one time, but regularly. You're not going to be 100%. You're not going to avoid every mistake. But my goal is to make sure that you don't make any drastic mistakes to where it wipes out all of your ability to truly build a financial future, right? If you went all in on uh, Netflix call options and then Netflix collapsed, well, now your assets are worth nothing. And you want to avoid situations like that. So as diversification, understanding risk versus reward, etc. And so having your eyes wide open to both sides is the only way for you to make sure that you're not making giant missteps. Okay. So on this podcast, I'm going to operate as always with my mission statement, which is independent thinking and shared success. So I'm talking about the market as a whole particular segment of uh, an educational segment. Maybe it's a strategy that we're unpacking. I'm here to present all without bias. Just give you the facts as I see them in front of me. I have a lot of data that we use every single day and also use my 20 plus years of investment experience every single day. So that's my goal is to answer your finance and investment questions. And you can reach out to me right now during our live stream program from four to five Pacific time, or you can leave a question on our anytime voice bank. Either way, the number never changes. It's still 888 chart. So let's get right to our first listener question now. Hi, Stephen Justin. I'm calling in with a question on the company Lumen Technologies. I uh, wanted to get your opinion. Seems like it was down, but now is going back up. I have a few shares and was wondering if it'd be best to continue to hold or buy more. Wanted to see what you think. Thank you. Well, this is Lumen Technologies. We own this for clients, and it did have a bad earnings reaction in February. But basically, after about a week after that announcement, it started to rally and has been an uptrend ever since. And then its most recent earnings announcement, it actually beat expectations, raised guidance, and just showed that they are making progress towards their, their turnaround. Um, and they do produce a ton of cash flow. Uh, which is uh, very important in this market. And they're able to pay that dividend in the near term. They are selling off some assets that they don't see as important to their long-term uh, path as they go through this kind of restructuring. And uh, I think that's uh, positive. So revenues are declining, but that's strategic. And earnings are going up uh, last quarter of 43% year over year. So I think that is important to, to understand. Um, and we 
we like that. We like that trend of cash flow being steady despite their sales overall going down, which means that their margins are going up and they are shedding legacy businesses that just really weren't that profitable. So um, we still like Lumen and we'd be picking up on any pullback. Thanks for the call. Now, my focus point today is based on this headline, Lessons Learned from Surviving Thematic Funds. And these are funds that target a particular kind of subsector of the market, you know, clean energy, uh, the internet, uh, you know, usually these are capitalizing on the investor sentiment, hot investor sentiment around a particular sector, whether that's um, AI, or it could be uh, could be electric vehicles, for example, things that excite people. And over the past 20 plus years, ever since dot-com bubble 1.0, I say we're dot-com bubble 2.0 is currently crashing. Um, but ever since the first tech bubble, you've had a series of rolling interest in various parts of the market. And usually that coincides with a thematic ETF or mutual fund being launched to ca to gather a lot of assets and capitalize on that investor interest. So we're going to look back on the the funds that survived and hint hint about 80% of them did not survive, meaning they closed up shop. So we're going to look at that. I think this is a fantastic article to give you a sense, and this is from Morningstar. So Morningstar went back and looked at, looked at all of these. Uh, and so you can see this over on besttalk.com if you, or just go to Morningstar. It's called Lessons Learned from Surviving Thermatic Funds. There you go. So we're going to look at that. Also, pri private equity. A lot of uh, the sales pitch on private equity is that it's less volatile than the overall equity markets and has better returns. So we're going to look at the data there. Also, new accounting rules are changing the way bank earnings are reported. And what does that mean? And so this is vital if you're looking at owning banks, you do own banks, to understand the, the rules around the rules around the, the reporting of their cash flows, of their earnings, etc. And then lastly, investors are running into government bonds once again. So we're going to look at the, the trends there and the data. So that's what's on my mind, but ultimately I want to hear what's on your mind. 8899 chart is how you get through and ask your question. Now the market today, the S&P was down about 68 points, about a percent and a half. The NYSE, that was down 163 points, a little over 1%. So uh, a modest pullback. We're still kind of in this choppy sideways pattern from Friday's really strong close. And so that's what this week was. It was a, it was a uh, holiday shortened week. And it closed overall down on the week, but within, you know, a tight range. And so it was just kind of eating time off the clock in my mind to for another move higher over in the overall indices. Um, but obviously, the news around Tesla and uh, the weak jobs report that certainly weighed on markets as a whole. Uh, but overall didn't really change the short term technical setup that we see here. Now it is an Invest Talk Friday and we're moving into a break. I'm here on duty and ready to answer your questions. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART.
Why do listener questions make InvestTalk better? Which of these would you recommend? Because each caller presents fresh questions in their voice. I was curious if you still think aluminum has a ways to go from here. When do I know the right time to take profits? Should I be looking for an exit? Should I be holding here? And listeners instinctively realize that InvestTalk uniquely offers a welcome dose of investing satisfaction. I think you have a terrific show, and I've learned a whole lot. Hey, guys, love your show. Uh, I've been listening for several years now, and I've learned a lot. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley understand what investors need and want. I would look at it from a tax perspective. If there's no tax implications, move on, find better ways to use that money. I'm going with the odds. I think a half position now would at least get you in it and get you watching it so you won't lose track of it. Don't forget to call Investor 888-99-CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. So as long as your questions involve the stock market or general investment topics and definitions, we set no limits. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Justin and I are ready. Are you? Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888-99-CHART. Hi, Justin and Steve. Thank you so much for your program. Justin, my question, I have two questions for you. One is based on a, a program you had a couple of weeks ago, a podcast. You said that we should never think of a stock as too cheap or too expensive based on the price. And you gave the example of Bookshire Hathaway. I was wondering, besides the P.E., is there any other way that we could come to that determination? Also, how reliable are the Morningstar valuations? I have a Robinhood account, and it does give that five-star rating, but I don't always agree with it. So I was wondering if I can get your opinion, again, just to see how reliable it could be, and hopefully it's not biased. Thank you so much. Bye. All right. Well, the first thing is you need to move your Robinhood account to a big broker. I always say this. Still, people have their accounts there. It's clear there's zero reason anymore to have your accounts at Robinhood. Move it to a big broker. Still free trading. Much better research. Much better support, etc. So that's number one. Number two uh, is how how reliable is Morningstar? Well, they're still analysts. Uh, analysts make mistakes, and their models and valuations are based on assumptions. And typically, it's a discounted cash flow model. And discounted cash flow models, once again, all about assumptions of cash flows, earnings, growth, etc., going forward. And the one thing we I mean, we use Morningstar as as one tool. It's it's one of many. Uh, but we use Morningstar, and we look at what they think, what their valuation is, what their inputs are to their models as they explain. And sometimes we agree with them. Sometimes we differ, and we adjust accordingly. The one thing I like about Morningstar versus, say, what you're going to get from a big bank is Morningstar doesn't have any conflicts of interest. They're just have paid subscribers like us. Like We pay for, obviously, Morningstar Premium, and a lot of advisors and investors do that. Whereas a big bank, oftentimes they have a relationship with that company, and they're trying to get their investment banking business. So 
there's some conflicts of interest to say, well, I want to give it a buy rating or a high valuation so that our investment banking side can uh, have a good relationship so that they can issue bonds or issue equities or whatever, right? And so history has shown there's a lot of conflicts of interest there. And so that's why it's always better to, to err on the side of an, uh, an independent outfit like that. Okay. Now, PE, I would say I rarely use PE as a good metric, whether the thing is expensive or cheap. We like to use things like enterprise value to free cash flow, enterprise value to EBITDA, etc. Um, so there's a long list there that I can't fully unpack right now. So we're heading to a break. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART. The markets react to uncertainty. Are you prepared? Is your portfolio balanced? Is it optimized? Your financial future depends on the answers to those questions. Justin Klein is here now and ready to talk with you. Call Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Let's go to Dave in Ohio looking at... What stock were you looking at? W... WDS. It was a spinoff from uh, BHP. I just received it earlier this week. And, uh, okay. WDS is insane. Company. WDS. Was that F is, S is in Sam or F is in Frank? Yes. Yeah, S is in Sam. Woodside okay. Energy Group. Hmm. Just get your thoughts that maybe I should buy more. It's uh, It does pay a decent dividend. 5% yield. Uh, Woodside, got it. Okay. Yes, it's so new that some of my systems aren't really uh, Woodside Energy Group. Okay. Yeah, it was just a spinoff earlier this week. All right. So, very old company. It's focused on, let's see. I haven't heard of this one because just a recent spinoff. You said that was from Shell or BHP? BHP. BHP. Got it. Okay. So, they're spinning off their looking at different charts here i mean the technicals are fine um i don't have a lot of data to be honest with you just because it is that that's that recent um let me just i'm trying to pull it up on different systems because it's not uniform uh i obviously love the oil industry right now and i think that will continue to do well um let me it see. pays almost a six percent yield yeah, I see that. Yeah, about 6%. It's focused in uh it's focused in Australia. And does LNG production look by natural gas? Okay. So I like that. I mean, that's something that's going to be needed and and Australia is a big exporter of natural resources. And so I I I think it's fine. There's no reason I I wouldn't keep it. Um, once again, I don't have a ton of data on it, um, but the chart looks fine. The fundamentals look fine. The yields look good. So, you know, this might be one of those names that uh, is under followed right now simply because it is that recent spinoff. But I see no reason why you wouldn't want to continue to hold this name because uh, everything looks fine on it. Thanks for the call. Now let's grab an iTunes review question. Pulowski Boy says, I'm a young investor, 27 years old, and I already have a Roth IRA that I started since I was a freshman in high school. 
Congratulations, first off. Each year, I max out my contributions and do stock trading in blue chips companies as well as ETFs. Is it a wise investment decision to also start a brokerage account and invest in blue chip companies as well? The answer is yes, I, it is. You're still a young investor, not sure what your income level is, but you're probably not in a high tax bracket. So there's nothing wrong. If, if you've maxed out your IRAs and your 401k match, you know, those are the kind of the two priorities when you're going to save for retirement, getting the full employer match and then maxing out ideally a Roth IRA. Maybe you don't qualify. Maybe you just do a regular IRA, et cetera. Once those are kind of maxed out, then a brokerage account is a, certainly a good way to go. Yes, you have to deal with some taxes, but you can always do tax loss selling, uh, et cetera. Um, but it's going to probably grow over time better than just putting that money into your savings account. So, uh, yes, I would set up a regular brokerage account. Thanks for the call. Now let's touch on thematic funds, that thematic funds and thematic funds are all the rage at any given time. There's usually some type of company that is, or the type of, yeah, I guess type of industry that is hot. And this is a great article from Morningstar. They looked 15 years back from December 31st, 2021. And what they found was that more than 80% of thematic funds worldwide closed their doors, meaning it wasn't worthwhile to operate them anymore, probably because they didn't have very many assets in them. And most of these thematic funds were one hit wonders. They didn't live long enough to see their investment thesis pan out. Okay. So, they looked at some of the survivors. Who were those 20% and what did they have in common? Now, most of the active funds on the list came to market in the 90s during the tech bubble 1.0 internet craze. And that's what they focused on, as you would imagine. Now, not all of the 20 survivors over that time period, the last 25, 30 years or so, have uh, are, are really stars. Just because they survived doesn't mean that they're killing it. In fact, only one active and five passive uh, funds of those survivors have over a billion dollars in assets. Remember, a billion dollars in this space is actually not a ton of money. Okay. Now, two of these uh, funds only recently got to that billion dollar fund uh, mark, and that was because of clean energy. They're clean energy funds. The first trust. Uh, NASDAQ Clean Energy Green ETF, as well as the Wilder Hill Clean Energy ETF. And because of the boom in clean energy investing uh, in 2020, they got a lot of assets. Now that's obviously declining since, but you can see how kind of it's a flash in the pan. Sometimes they are in vogue and sometimes they're not. Okay. Now many of these funds gather a lot of their assets early on and then they bleed them throughout the rest of their life with short surges, depending on if that comes back. Now we're gonna to go to a break, but I wanna unpack these a little bit more after the break. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We wanna make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. 
With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is Invest Talk. Is your portfolio balanced? Is it optimized? Is it delivering the types of gains you want and need to achieve financial freedom? Well, turn up the volume because there are many questions that deserve unbiased answers. And Justin Klein is here now, ready to take your calls live. 888-99-CHART. Now, before the break, uh, I was touching on how the vast majority of thematic funds tend to close up shop in the subsequent decade or so. And there are some funds that have survived, but that's not the, in my mind, the hallmark of success. Just because you've survived doesn't mean that you're doing well. And these funds overall, even the ones that survived, have not done their investors very well. In fact, only three active and three passive fund managed uh, funds managed to outperform the Morningstar U.S. market index during their, you know, from inception to April of this year. Think about that. Six out of hundreds and hundreds that have been launched over the past 20, 30 years. And what's, if you look back at many of them, you'll see that a lot of the outperformance in a short period of time had to do with just being lucky and taking a lot of risk at the right time. For example, Kinetic Internet, which is a mutual fund, outperformed the Morningstar US market index by nearly 100% annualized for a three-year period from 97 to April 2000. But then it fell back down to earth and fizzled out and disappeared. Kind of similar in my mind to ARC. You know, ARC is the is the was the flavor of the the time. And now that time is over, and that's why those funds have gone down so dramatically, and probably will eventually close up shop because clearly they can't pivot. And if you look at the passive funds, returns were even more volatile than the active ones. So more passive ones survived, but their overall performance wasn't much better and they did it with a lot of volatility. Why? Because most of them suffered large drawdowns and they didn't change. They, they came out with their index when they launched and they didn't make any changes throughout the years. And what this shows is that if you're investing in thematic funds, you need to be prepared for a lot of volatility and the long droughts of underperformance. Why? Because even the best, most durable themes that happen uh, within the business community go in and out of style. Sentiment, especially in exciting, emotional-driven investments, ebb and flow in a big, big way. And that means the money invested in them ebb and flow. 
So most of these long surviving thematic funds have failed. And it speaks to probably more to the fact that their backers, the fund families, just want to keep them open. And so the performance of them tells you to be cautious, not confident in the quote unquote theme that you fall in love with, whether that's robotics or uh, biotech, whatever it is, it just shows you you're just not diversified and odds are very good that you're investing at the wrong time. And that's the problem here. In order to win, three things need to happen. The theme must be correct, mean it must have must play out well over the long term and at a reasonable pace. And then the companies within the portfolio need to benefit from that trend, meaning actually turn profits. And the EV space is a good example. Most of the company within the um, clean energy electric vehicle space, they lose money. And so it's not just that there has to be more action within that industry and growth within the industry, but the businesses have to do well, not just be there to raise capital. And then third, investors must buy at the right price. So even if the first two things pan out, if you pay way too much, which a lot of investors did over the past couple of years, the odds of you, you know, buying at the right time are very low. So this just shows to show you that thematic funds are mainly there to gather assets, earn a lot of money for the sponsor. Kind of reminds me of a SPAC. And they're not very great for you, the investor, who's chasing this quote unquote theme. It makes you feel warm and fuzzy, but guess what? It's not very warm and fuzzy for your portfolio as a whole. So that's my thesis for today's focus point. Now let's head over to the Invest Talk Voice Bank for this question. Hey, Justin and Steve, this is Nick from Seattle calling. I'm calling about ticker symbol NVST, that's Invista Holdings Corp. This is an interesting company. They were spun out from Danaher in late 19, and they focus on dental practice and any needs for a dental office, including the drills and, and, the, and the equipment. The company is interesting. They appear to have strong financials. They're, the quick and current ratios look look pretty good. Slowly growing their earnings and sales year over year. Their PE is a little high. Um, it's like a it's like a 28. But again, they are growing their earnings by about 10 to 15 percent year over year. I'm calling to get your opinion on this firm and really the the biopharmaceutical and and dental practice market as a whole. Thanks. I'll be looking forward to uh, your answers on an upcoming show. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Looking at Invista Holdings, N-V-S-T is the symbol. And you're right. They sell dental products, develop manufacturers and markets, portfolio of dental consumables, equipment, and services to dental professionals. So clearly a nice bread and butter business. I like that. And if you look at their overall cash flow, it's is pretty steady. That's kind of an issue though, is that it's almost too steady and there's really no growth here. 2016, they had revenue of 2.8 billion. Trailing 12 months, they're at 2.5 billion. Pre-pandemic, they were at 
$1.75 billion in 2019. So flat to negative growth over the past five, six years. And then what are you going to pay for, for that? Yes, it's probably consistent or, you know, it is consistent and I like that. Uh, but they, what are you going to pay for pretty much no growth? Enterprise value to EBITDA is 16 times price to free cash flow about 27 times. It's just too expensive for not a whole lot of growth. And then you look at the return on equity, return on assets in the mid to high single digit range for the past six years, which is okay, but it's not exciting. And then it doesn't pay a dividend and they're issuing more shares. So in 2019, they had 136 million shares outstanding. Now they have 179 million shares outstanding. So they're issuing more shares in order to, I don't know what, they have positive cash flow. So I don't know why they need to issue more shares. It's not to pay a dividend, it's to pay themselves what is happening here? Um, so that's my issue. It's a fine company earning nice, solid, consistent profits, but it's just way, way, way too expensive for something that doesn't pay a dividend, doesn't have much growth. Uh, so I'm passing on Invista Holdings, NVST. Now, the KPP Premium Newsletter was finished today and it will be distributed to subscribers tomorrow morning. And Steve always shares a preview. So I will do that now. Now in the market conditions section, we explained that there was a lot of economic numbers out this week and they are important to review. However, it is always enlightening to reflect on the background of the economy and its direction. The, econo the economic numbers we receive every week from various sources are almost always lagging indicators, but it's the lagging indicators, sorry, it's the leading indicators that are important. I'm referring to indicators such as the weekly jobless claims, which are low and remain so, or building permits that give us a hint as to future construction, uh, factory orders, and, and of course the LDI report that is released once a month. Currently, the main concerns for the economy are inflation and the Fed's stated goals of raising interest rates. Lesser degrees of apprehension are being caused by the Russia-Ukraine war and the specter of COVID, which have now taken a backseat to what the Fed is implementing. Now we have the recipe for inflation, strong demand and weak supply chain and excessive spending with the easy money from the Fed. The results of these policies are manifesting today with widespread inflation. Consequently, investors are concerned about the likelihood of a recession. So that's kind of the start of market conditions, but kind of goes on to discuss the trends even more. Now in the portfolio management section, explain that a moving average, which is the average price of a security over a specific time period, is a common indicator used in technical analysis. Moving averages can establish trends and measure momentum, which can help traders make decisions about whether to buy or sell security. Investors can also use these indicators to identify support and resistance levels, which can help gauge when a price is likely to change direction. However, like all indicators, it is not a perfect tool and can can present risk to investors that rely on moving averages as an absolute metric. First thing to remember about moving averages is that they pull data from the past. So moving averages do not consider any changes that may affect the security's future performance. So there's uh, an expanded explanation of that within the newsletter and what's what moving averages are typically best. Now in the stock idea section, we focus on the operation that has grown into a global specialty chemical giant with manufacturing sites around the world. The company generates most of its sales outside the U.S. and maintains a strong presence in Asian markets. 
Now, as the company continues to develop new patented top products, it should expand its specialty chemicals business, which generates higher margins and commands some degree of pricing power. We also look at the largest automated dealer, automotive dealer in the U.S. It enjoys 2021 revenues of nearly $26 billion. It has 57 collision centers and approximately 250 dealership, dealerships covering nearly 350 locations. And it has good upside potential. We name those names in the premium newsletter. Well, there's, a good, there's a great deal of valuable information over there. So when you subscribe to investtalk.com, you'll receive the newsletter each Saturday morning via your inbox. You can subscribe, like I said, over at investtalk.com. Now let's pivot to private equity. And you might get pitched this in a lot of wealthier individuals, uh, those that either earn over $200,000 a year or have a million dollars in investable assets, they're allowed to invest in private funds. And private equity firms market their products as performing better in downturns. And some research, some researchers question this sales pitch and mainly because it's hard to know exactly what the value of the assets within their portfolio because they don't have to mark to market. Right? They're not consistently liquid like public stocks, public equities. And so private equity valuations don't tend to respond with the same high frequency as public markets, which trade every single day. And so opinions, probably depending on what side of ledger you're on, differ on whether private equity funds actually are less volatile or do they only appear to be because they only report once every three months and the valuations they report are pretty subjective. For private equity funds overall, depends on when you're launched, when the fund was launched, but most of them that were launched even during the last recession, 2007, 2010, perform worse than funds that launch later. So it's not just about the timing. Uh, it's about how those funds are allocated. Are they investing in hot sectors that maybe valuations are too high on average? Or is a time when maybe valuations across the board are depressed and they're investing in themes that have better valuations? Are the funds launched during those years? The 2008, not surprisingly, the ones from then posted a 13.3% pooled internal rate of return, which is the best of the last 15 years. But those that launched 2007, 2009, 2010 actually underperformed the S&P. So certainly a mixed bag, depending on which ones you're investing in. Now, so far in the first quarter, most of the large private equity firms from Apollo, Blackstone, Carlyle Group, et cetera, they report 5% loss compared to what the SP did, which was much worse than that. KKR's portfolio declined about the same as the stock index, but once again, that is based on subjective valuations. Now, the big issue here is leverage. Private equity firms, almost all of them, employ some amount of leverage. And that means that they should be more susceptible to swings in valuation. The average private equity firm has almost seven times debt to EBITDA. 
that's a lot of leverage. So while the sales pitch is that they tend to do better during downturns, and I think that's true in time, kind of times like this where you're seeing a lot of the overvalued meme stocks, tech stocks, those are coming down. Private equity firms don't typically invest big into those companies, mainly because they need companies with cash flow, cash flow. And a lot of those tech stocks, they didn't, they don't have it. And so even in the private markets, they want, they're, they're using debt. So they need cash flow to pay that debt. That's really what private equity is doing. They're leveraging up the balance sheet, using the cash flow of the business to continue to pay off that debt over time. And that's mainly their, their strategy. But things in, in times like this, that's not really the issue. But in a recession, that's when you're going to see private equity really taken on the chin. Not yet, but watch out. Private equity firms are in for hurting during the next recession. Now we're heading into our final break, so give me a call at 888-99-CHART. Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Now, the next Invest Talk, the story behind this headline 25% of Americans are delaying retirement due to inflation. And one data point by BMO Harris Bank says, that 36% of Americans have already seen their savings hit by inflation. So obviously, there's concern there. That story is on Monday. But for now, I'm Justin Klein, and I'm ready to take your questions. Now, Friday, generally, Steve makes time to fit in quick rundown of key benchmark numbers. So let's hit that for now. Two-year treasury yield was 2.65. Last week, it was at 2.49, so up a little bit after a pullback. 11 weeks ago it was at 1.96, 12 weeks about 1.75. So, and it's way up from 23 weeks ago, about six months ago, from 6.64%. So we're up uh, over 200 basis points. Clearly, this is forward guidance from the Fed moving rates dramatically. Now, gold was priced at 18.50 an ounce. That's up slightly from last week and uh, and, and continues to uh, move in a choppy upward direction, and I think still overall pretty bullish. The 10-year Treasury yield, that was at 2.957%. That was up over 20 basis points over last week, so pretty decent move on the 10-year. And you can see that two-year, 10-year spread widened out a bit, which actually is positive for the economy overall, or positive indicator at least. Now, silver today was at $21.91 an ounce, basically moderately flat, moderately down uh, from $22.06 last week. Oil at $118 a barrel up about 4 bucks from last week and up dramatically. 24 weeks ago, it was at $66 a barrel. So uh, it's amazing what a war can do in the second big or the biggest uh, exporter of energy in the world. Makes a lot of sense. The average gallon of regular gas, $4.76. It was nearly $7 for me when I filled up uh, earlier today. Uh, but that was up from last week's $4.59. So clearly continued to go up to California. Average $6.24. Yeah, so 
I paid for premium, I paid uh, nearly $7. That's up from $6.07 last week. Now for comparison, Missouri, guess is only $4 and it's 35 cents. Pretty nice. Well, let's close up shop today with an article on bank earnings or some information on bank earnings. And this has always been something you have to understand when you're looking at bank numbers are loan loss provisions. And there's always been this little wrinkle in accounting rules that said you need to build reserves and you, you have to build reserves based on expected loan losses in the near term. The problem is that ever since 2020, since the start of 2020, banks have had to look at loan or account for loan losses they expect any time in the future. So not just imminently, meaning defaults imminently. It's how, what, what could your defaults be in the next 10 years? And so clearly, instead of looking over the next couple quarters, you're looking over the next decade plus, your swings and volatility of your loan loss reserves is going to change dramatically. Now, in the five years before this new rule took, took a, went into effect, the average change of earnings from quarter to quarter were 6% compared to the prior year. Since then, since the start of 2020, banks have averaged a 53% gain. And year-over-year profits across the banking industry were down 70% in the first quarter of 2020. Why? You had a lot of layoffs, and that was projected to cause a certain amount of loan losses in the future, defaults. And so they had to pull that out of earnings. Well, in the, second, uh, in the first quarter of 2021, as things improved, unemployment rates started to come down dramatically. Profits soared 300%. So the volatility of those earnings picked up dramatically. And so it's kind of, I think, a dumb rule. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Because things are going to change big from, from quarter to quarter over the next 10 years, depending on the change in whether uh, we're going to recession or not. So understand this when you're looking at bank in, uh, earnings and, and net income that you really want to focus on cash flow and, and revenue because bank revenue hasn't really changed a whole lot, but earnings have been have caused a wild swing because of those loan loss reserves. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can get yours anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Be sure to rate and review on iTunes, and we will prioritize your answer. Independent thinking, shared success. This Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.